Hello, and welcome to the final episode of America and Democracy, a mini-series from the MIT Press podcast, where we've heard authors and academics from across the press's output reflect on the election. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Brandon M. Terry. Brandon is Assistant Professor of African and African American Studies and Social Studies at Harvard University. And in 2018, he edited two books on the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. The first, To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr., was published by Harvard University Press and was edited in collaboration with Tommy Shelby. The second book, 50 Years Since MLK, was published by the MIT Press and the Boston Review and features his widely discussed essay, MLK Now. In the following interview, I asked Brandon about a variety of issues to which King's political philosophy offers insight, from the recent election result to the renaissance in anti-racist activism in America and across the world. I was really hoping with this discussion today, we could talk about Martin Luther King Jr but then draw the work you've done around him into a dialogue with this election specifically. Just to start off with, to talk about your essay, MLK Now, and the two edited collections more generally, you're talking about a process by which King is sort of absorbed into narratives and he's kind of put into work in ways that are in service of institutions or politics that aren't really his own. And I was wondering if you could talk about that process of canonization and how you see it playing out just to begin with. In some respects, you might think that the canonization or, or, or better yet even conscription of Martin Luther King to a paradigm that wasn't his own began immediately when he was assassinated. The fact that before this past summer, actually, the week after King's death in April of 1968 was the largest wave of domestic insurrection since the Civil War. And the summer is now eclipsed that in some respects, not on the scale of destruction, but in how widespread and how many communities, how many people were involved in protest and, and demonstrations and um, rebellions. But immediately you have this crisis right after he dies. And I think there were a lot of people who thought that they could use King's commitment to nonviolence as a way to pacify, discredit, render illegitimate the forms of uh, discontent and rebellion that exploded all across the country immediately. It wasn't until that period, and Drew Hansen has this, uh, a really great book on the I Have a Dream speech. It wasn't really until that period that people came to see the I Have a Dream speech as like a synecdoche of King's entire career. Before people understood him as engaged in a lot of different things, many of which they disagreed with. Uh, right before he died, his popularity level was about 10 to 15 points lower than Trump's is right now. Right. Uh, he was a very unpopular person when he died. He was known for his opposition to the war. He was known for radical forms of civil disobedience and mass demonstration and for his strident critique of racism and capitalism. And people didn't appreciate that, even many African-Americans. So I think if you fast forward a bit to the 70s and 80s, there comes to be a dovetailing of two 
unique interest. There's one is like an ascendant conservative ruling class that is trying to signal in symbolic ways that it's not committed to the old projects of racism. And King's language of colorblindness becomes something that they can inhabit, turn against many of the things that King defended, certainly voting rights, uh, even um, integration. But to use the language of colorblindness, they saw an opportunity in King's rhetoric uh, to signal anti-racism at one level, but pursue a project of the protection of white privilege in another. For on the other hand, you had a group of black middle-class activists who saw this as a symbol of inclusion. So here is the most acceptable African-American leader, the one people most identify with, the one whose tragedy most shaped that generation. And to see him venerated was for many of them, I think, a symbol of their inclusion. And after they had tried to do other things in his memory, a full employment bill, the poor people's campaign, those things were defeated. This retreat to symbolism seemed like the only avenue forward. The genius though, and I've come to appreciate this the more I think about it, the genius of someone like Coretta Scott King to get the holiday established, however, is like leaving breadcrumbs through the woods, right? That putting him in the pantheon of American civilization has let the next generation of which I'm a part follow the crumbs of his actual words back to a much more radical, expansive and critical vision than we were force-fed in Black History Month celebrations and Martin Luther King celebrations at elementary school. Now that we're doing the work, we're discovering that there's some really powerful tools at our disposal that we that we weren't really aware of on the front end. And I think yeah. Coretta Scott King knew that. Yeah, that dynamic that you talk about of the kind of stripping out of material demands in place for a kind of symbolic recognition seems to be really definitive of what's happening now with the black activism in the U.S. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Well, I hope that that story is not settled yet, but it's a danger. And what I worry about is that if we don't learn really difficult lessons like that from the past, we're doomed to repeat them. So as much as I detest and find absolutely disgusting, the persistence of Confederate monuments around the United States. Uh, those kinds of symbolic gestures pale in the level of concern that I have for questions of uh, radical police reform, decarceration, the protection of voting rights, the protection of an expansion of reparative justice programs, including affirmative action. Like those to me seem like the broader policy front to defend. I think those things are related. I mean, the symbolic realm helps buttress these political projects, but it's very easy to swap out a set of symbolic gestures, painting Black Lives Matter on the street for actually dealing with the naughty problems of race and class in policing, of sexism in policing, that are life or death issues, quite frankly. So like that, I think, is, a, is an important question and one that we have to reflect on history to, to resolve. And the second thing, I think a more subtle point, is that there's a way in which the, the Black Lives Matter movement was so quickly embraced and commodified by the culture industry in the United States, partly because people wanted to signal their resistance to Trump that I actually think it's managed to paper over some of the radical edge of the claims that people are making on the ground. 
And in a sense, you might think what you have is a, is a kind of canonization in miniature um, that obviously not the level of esteem or reverence that someone like King has, but a, a really quick incorporation into the mainstream popular culture that sanded down much of what would be disconcerting for the status quo when thinking through the implications of Black Lives Matter's more radical demands. Mm, yeah. I just wanted to ask you, you, you speak a lot about the desire to produce these works as a response to an experience you and your colleagues are having with younger students being slightly reticent about engaging with Martin Luther King. And sure. you almost kind of paint this image of him almost being like a bit of a square and people being more excited <laughs> by the more radical figures of right. Audre Lorde, Angela Davis and Malcolm X. And could you talk about, about that a little bit and how you see MLK is kind of, where does he resonate with this new wave of organization that we're seeing in the US? It's a great question. So first, you know, I came of political maturity or political awareness, let's say. I don't think I was very mature. Um, <laughs> I came of political awareness in the 90s, right? And so, if you know anything about 1990s Black politics, you know, it was the age of the Black Nationalist Revival, Spike Lee's Malcolm X came out in 1992. Louis Farrakhan was a major figure in Black politics. Million Man March in 1995. And the emergence of gangster rap was basically the biggest cultural phenomena in my lifetime. And in that milieu, it was just like, there was just no sense that Martin Luther King spoke to what we were going through, right? That the stance of just dramatic opposition, masculine self-assertion, a tie to the ghetto and to the questions of like crime and deviance that the, the Panthers seemed to signify and that Malcolm X seemed to signify. Those just all seemed very wildly away from the types of things we imagined Martin Luther King to be concerned with. And the sense that you, you could keep your dignity while being involved in a project that was talking about love and nonviolence, it just, it didn't register. And I think that those cultural influences have lingered into to the present and that people imagine, just right from the job, I mean, people imagine, well, Malcolm X is more radical than Martin Luther King. Well, that's a, that's a tough question. And what I was lucky enough to go through is I studied under the great political scientist, Michael Dawson, the great philosopher, Tommy Shelby, who I then did this edited collection with, you know, Cornell West, and really returning <laughs> to, to studying King, I got to understand, I think, three elements that are really important for, you know, grappling with like, who's really radical here? So one is the question of capitalism. And that for, for many in the tradition, this isn't true of the Panthers, but it would be true of the Nation of Islam, um, folks like Farrakhan, uh, even the early Malcolm X, they embraced capitalism. They, in fact, they embraced basically the most romantic and retrograde form of capitalism that there is. It's kind of this idea that we're going to have a kind of petty bourgeois set of shop owners and small industries that can thrive and a segregated community and that the dollar will just circulate around this community making everybody well off well that just became ridiculous in the era of globalization and offshoring and 
corporate tax havens and neoliberal public policy, that that vision just became more and more and more absurd as we watched the world deteriorate around us. But who was talking about those questions as early as the 1960s and 50s? Martin Luther King was. He understood how tightly tied the question of capitalism was to the question of racial domination in a way that Farrakhan and these guys just didn't. Uh, so that was number one. Number two was the internationalism of King. I think, again, you gotta remember how early this was for a lot of us. Just the, the fact, the long impact of the defeat in Vietnam still hadn't been worked through, right? You talk about in 1992, the, the big presidential question was whether Bill Clinton was a draft dodger for not having fought in Vietnam, right? And that was like a, a major question. Instead of, has the Vietnam era unleashed practice of perpetual warfare which is eroding democratic citizenship in the United States, eroding our investment in public goods in the United States, bringing back, as, as my friend, the historian Kathleen Ballou has beautifully demonstrated, bringing back these currents of white nationalism, Islamophobia, racism. We hadn't reckoned with any of that. But King, that speech in Riverside Church and the speech he makes in L.A. beforehand called The Casualties of War, he's trying to warn everyone. He says the Vietnam thing has already happened. Our mistake in Vietnam has already happened. All we can do now is try to apologize and repair. But I'm thinking beyond Vietnam. That's why often people name the speech beyond Vietnam, because he's trying to project forward. He says we're unleashing currents we're setting in motion things that will destroy this country. That's not something that's on, that was on the forefront of these other people's minds to the same degree. You know, some Malcolm X, yes, some the Panthers, yes, but many of the reactionary currents of black nationalism, I mean, Harold Cruz said that Martin Luther King made a mistake coming out against the Vietnam War because he had betrayed black people who needed him to keep the liberal Democratic Party in line and support him that he had betrayed black people by coming out against the Vietnam War. Well, he's trying to save democracy. He's trying to save the very possibility of an egalitarian society. And lastly, uh, and the toughest one, is that I think a lot of us didn't quite realize, and I think more and more people are coming to reckon with this now, although it is a deep debate in black life and anti-racist politics, is the, the importance and significance of nonviolence and love as ideals. Now, they're deeply situated in the Christian tradition. That gives people a lot of reflexive aversion to them. But the way I understand the King call for love is to say that each of us is better than the worst thing we've ever done, that we should try to see capacities in others that we imagine in ourselves, that if we think that we are capable of transformation, we're capable of moral learning, we're capable of containing multitudes beyond mistakes that we made, that we try to see that in other people, that even as people commit injustice or wrongdoing, that we don't deny that they have needs and, and obligations and status that link us to them, that we are still responsive to the things that they deserve as people with dignity and with value. For many of us, that's the basis of our critique of the carceral state. <laughs> mm. But it's also a way of thinking about the agonistic, competitive, 
deeply despairing politics of the present when you're dealing against a, a, a right wing that's so intransigent, so intoxicated by paranoia, that it sometimes feels like all you can do is stand toward them in a relation of total enmity and, and violence. And to say, no, you still have to dig down deep in the reservoirs of understanding and love to try to reestablish a society in which people can live together in peace and flourishing and justice. That's very difficult. It's not, it's, it's something that people struggle with, but I, I think the, the radicalism of that view is really tightly tied to these other commitments that King has. And I think as people do more work on King's political philosophy in the organizing space, the church space, the activist space, the, the academic space, the powerful implications of that view are, are being felt more and more. Mm. Yeah. Cornel West seems to be someone that embodies that attitude so well when he goes on things like Fox News and you're kind of shocked by the sort of overwhelming love that he shows towards someone who it's quite hard to do so. But Well, King had this great line where he said, love doesn't mean I have to like you. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I don't like Bull Connor. I don't like him. He's a terrible person. But it does mean that I love him. I want the best for him. I want him to disavow the commitments that are ruining his life, that are destroying the society he claims to love, that are preventing him from connecting with the other people with whom he's already enmeshed in a single garment of destiny. That is real love. Mm. And to say that I don't want to annihilate him, I want to change him. Mm. Right? I want to constrain his ability to, to commit injustice against people. So that does require coercion, that does require state intervention, that does require political resistance on the ground, but it tries to avoid as best as it can annihilation and humiliation. Mm. And just to circle around back to the second part of my question there, do you feel like attitudes towards King are changing? Do you think people are understanding this, perhaps sometimes denied radicality in his work? I think it's growing. You know, look, you always have to be careful when thinking about U.S. political culture now because it's so fragmented. So I think that among activist circles, elite academic circles, the message that, look, the king that you were taught in grade school, the king that's been kind of peddled to you through the older culture industry, that's not the real king. I think more and more people are coming to grapple with that. Now, I think we still haven't gotten to the gritty details. That's partly what To Shape a New World is about, the gritty details of like, well, what really is the view of economic justice and why should I accept it? Because just because he's Martin Luther King doesn't mean he's right. I mean, he just... He's got to make arguments like everybody else. Is, is there something persuasive about the view, about the critique of militarism? Is there something persuasive about the view on economic justice? Is his critique of the Black Power Movement persuasive? How should we think about his sexism, right? So like that work needs to be done. We, I think we made an enormous contribution to that and to shape a new world, but more and more people are writing on that and that gives me hope. Now, on the other hand, and this is part of a fragmentation point, you know, I think in a lot of school systems and a lot of the media that, that average ordinary Americans consume, this message is not getting through. And that people, you know, and you can, you can see it in how people respond to protest on the ground, that they often will say things like, well, this isn't what Martin Luther King would support. You guys are shutting down the city. 
No, actually, Martin Luther King wrote quite extensively about mass civil disobedience and the need to shut down cities and how that was better than a riot, right? So on the flip side, you also have people saying, Martin Luther King says a riot is the language of the unheard and therefore he supports this riot. It's like, no, Martin Luther King had lots of great reasons not to be in favor of rioting, a violent rebellion. And it's not because he was somebody who was in favor of the status quo. He actually thought other forms of resistance were far more effective and destabilizing, shutting down the capacity of repression and the ongoing functioning of existing regimes of domination. So, you know, I think that level of granularity to the political philosophy to, to us is very, very important. To me is very important because it helps break through, you know, that congealed image of King that I still think is pretty widespread, even as it starts to break down in these little segments of isolated opinion in, in, in the States. Mm, yeah. And one of the results of left-wing and black organization in the US over the last six, seven, eight year or whatever, is a lot of white people who maybe wouldn't describe themselves as political. Uh, they're kind of reaching for educational materials and they're trying yeah. to engage or re-engage with theories of racism, what it is, how it functions. And it, I think a lot of people will be re-engaging with King's work potentially. And I was wondering if you could perhaps give some advice on people that are engaging with his work for the first time, how you would suggest a way in or a kind of an interesting way to read his work as a theorist, as opposed to a kind of biographical figure. Sure. That's a great question. So I think that the most important thing, and, and frankly, one that um, I wish people would do more of, is to read him himself <laughs> because his life is so remarkable. I mean, just an astonishing life and one that even if you were opposed to everything he stood for, you can't help but admire the courage and commitment, dedication to principle by which he lived most of his life. There are things where he did fall short. And I think even the places where he falls short, they remind you of just what a, kind of frail, fragile human like all of us he was, but engaged in this monumental task supported by others who were frail, fragile human beings trying to, to do this monumental work of, of bringing the moral arc of the universe closer toward justice. So, you know, that life can sometimes lead us away from studying the words, but the words are crucial. So for me, I would always encourage everybody to read Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, that's the last book he published while he was alive. It's the most comprehensive and systematic book in a lot of ways. And I think you get a good sense of his relationship to currents that people assume are more radical, like Black Power. I think that chapter on Black Power is a masterful essay that really unsettles a lot of the conventional things people think in this moment. I also think you get a great sense of his critique of the interpenetration of race and capitalism, where he thinks that's gone awry, right on the cusp of the era that we live in. So he's talking about automation and privatization, what that portends for, for questions of justice. And you also get his critique of militarism in quite strident tones. I'd also encourage people to read Trumpet of Conscience, which are a set of lectures he did for the um, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So it's a posthumously published book. It's very short, but it's the most radical King book. 
and he talks a lot. There's an amazing chapter in it called Youth and Social Action, where he's really trying to speak to the currents of youth activism at the time in ways that I think are like dramatically relevant for youth activism today. And then lastly, uh, let me just say, I'd also encourage people, I mean, you could just read all of it. I mean, it's so, so rich. He's got Stride Toward Freedom, which is a great organizing manual. But, you know, uh, Cornell West collection of The Radical King, I think also collects some pieces that people have lost sight of and which speak to questions about labor organizing, the critique of imperialism, and the eulogies and honorifics he gives to other figures which really influence him, but we don't think a lot about. So W.E.B. Du Bois, Norman Thomas, the great socialist leader. And I think you get a much more capacious sense of like who he understood himself to be and what he understood you know, the tasks of emancipation to entail. The next thing I want to ask you about is to discuss Joe Biden's, not quite president yet, but his presidency that if everything goes to plan, will uh, come to pass. I mean, he's an interesting figure in lots of ways, but he seems to perhaps share some similarities to kind of relationship between MLK and JFK and the Johnson presidency in the sense that they kind of identify themselves as progressives, but perhaps not live up to that in their decisions historically on policy. And I was wondering if you could reflect on any lessons that could be learned from the way King dealt with presidents and those relationships and how they might inform the ways in which uh, black activists now can apply pressure to government? It's a tough question. So I, I guess the, the first thing I'll say is that I would be cautious about the analogy for at least one major reason, which is that you got to remember that when Kennedy and Johnson are elected, a huge swath of African-Americans are not allowed to vote. Right. They just don't have to be anywhere near as responsive to black voters or black people distributed through the mainstream commentary class as exists in the present. I mean, this is basically the total opposite of the present. I mean, Joe Biden would not be the president without black support. He won the Democratic primary principally because of black support. Black people turned out in overwhelming numbers to support him for the presidential election, for the Democrats to be competitive. They constantly need enormous levels of Black turnout and near unanimous levels of Black support. Uh, that's just a, it's just a different political dynamic. So in some ways, you might think that's an improvement so that when Biden staffs the administration, when Biden thinks through policy decisions, particularly in the bureaucratic realm and administrative realm where he's not reliant on Senate confirmation, that there are, there are practices and policies and appointments he can make that are much more in line with left of center Black opinion. The second piece of this and the more complicated part is that the radical Black left is not gonna see themselves mirrored in the presidential administration most likely, and is gonna to have to find ways of engagement that are actually in many ways more difficult than what King had to navigate, not in terms of the type of physical courage or spiritual courage that was needed to pursue that, although depending on what white nationalists organizing brings forth, it, it might actually raise some of those questions again. 
But they've got to navigate a much, a much trickier terrain because King could claim to speak for a broad swath of Black public opinion outside of conventional politics and without many other African-Americans who could claim a similar mandate. Now, there's all sorts of complicated questions about charisma and leadership and whether that was good or not. Bracket those. This moment is, is just totally different. When Black Lives Matter activists make claims, they're often met immediately with competing claims from people like Jim Clyburn <laughs> or very famous entertainers who have huge constituencies of their own or President Barack Obama who might disagree with various formulations. So it's just a much more fragmented Black public sphere and the danger of direct action protest of various forms of dissent in that moment is that you might be outflanked in certain respects in your attempt to call on anti-racist public opinion, black public opinion, people of color public opinion by these other opinion leaders. And so you've got to also figure out a way around them in a way that King really only confronted when he tried to go north in places like New York or Chicago, and he was undermined in many respects by existing congressmen or aldermen and, and machine politicians who had a lot of power in this way. Yeah, that's a really interesting analysis. Thanks for that. I also wanted to ask you about images of black suffering and specifically kind of white supremacist violence that seem to have proliferated, not necessarily because there's any more of that kind of violence necessarily, but to do with the ways in which images are circulated. And I wondered if you could reflect on how that change in the ways in which those images are circulated might alter some of the strategies that King was interested in, how he kind of handled spectacle in a way that uh, mm -hmm. won favor, how that might change in an environment where images like this are kind of plastered and replastered across the internet. Yeah, I think we tend to have this folk anthropology about the witnessing of suffering, where we expect images of profound brutality or cruelty to motivate people to do something about it. But I think it's been the great insight of folks like Susan Sontag, Judith Butler and others to, to draw our attention to how that economy of images can be easily exhausted, how the way that those images are framed can actually work to devalue the lives they claim to center and partition our forms of solidarity so that they're not galvanized. And that forces us to rethink what King was up to in some important ways. And one of the things I, I, I try to get my students to think about is that King's mastery in the civil rights movement broadly, the mastery of images really draws on two deeper things that they figured out. One is that they knew how to transgress expectations to draw people's attention towards certain types of images. So for us, we live awash in some civil rights symbolism. So the idea of like very solemn, disciplined African-American singing spirituals in suits, that's a familiar image we all have ready at hand. And, you know, at various times where we might be moved by it, but it, it seems like it's a familiar image that doesn't do the work of like astonishment or wonder any longer. But in his time, and he writes about this constantly, 
He says that the worst stereotype that African-Americans confront in the 1950s is that they are passive people who will endure any kind of humiliation or injustice. Very, very different than our stereotyping regime, which is that Black people will fly off at the handle at the slightest racial insult, right? You call me articulate, you know, and I jump all, you know, that's, that's a factor in our comedy and everything else, right? So he understood that the performance of discipline, certain kind of stoicism, self-organization, courage, that that was operating against a background of expectations and transgressed them so radically that it would draw everyone's attention to it. The question for us in this economy of images are like, what kinds of images would transgress the expectations of this period? So that's number one. The, the second point is this, is why did the George Floyd video break through the public consciousness the way it did? On my view, it's in part because Derek Chauvin was performing. He knew he was being filmed. He knew he was being filmed by children. We, because of the angle of the camera, inhabit the perspective of the child viewer, and thus he's performing for us. And what is he performing? Well, he's performing contempt, not just contempt for George Floyd's life, but a whole pedagogy of contempt for children to let them know that their claims of justice, their claims of mercy, their claims for fair treatment, their claims to be heard, have no standing here. They will receive no hearing on the streets that people like him control. To watch that performance in this sort of unbridled intensity, I think unsettled and implicated a lot of Americans. That's also what King was able to do with images. He was able to produce performances of brutality. And I'm using King as a synecdoche here. I mean, I, you know, this broader civil yeah. rights organization, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SNCC, local organizers, so please don't make this a singular thing, but they're, they're engaged in a project of eliciting and staging performances of repression that implicate all of us. And so many people around the world were watching and felt implicated. They didn't feel like, it's like, why is it, why does it matter that he's getting the police to do this work, right? That he's like, goading the police into a certain kind of repression or, or not goading, I'm saying revealing the way in which uh, the police uphold a whole order of racial domination. Well, he's showing you that this kind of thing can exist without the state backing it, without the state that acts in your name. And if that's true, then you're implicated. It's not just a bunch of, you know, wild, local toughs who had too much to drink and are doing their own thing. It's the state. It's mm. you. To me, the, that's the image question. So like, I think you can say lots of things. I mean, the brilliant political theorist Shatima Thirdcalf has this great new project where she's thinking about how Black women have a spectacular death deficit and how that you know, the, the reliance on spectacular death and the images of spectacular death lead us to ignore the kind of injustices visited upon Black women. I think that's important. I think the exhaustion of Black suffering is important, the ways in which it can terrorize and really 
caused a lot of depression and despair in young Black people. The, the poet Elizabeth Alexander has written amazingly about that. But for me, these political questions are, are different, and they're this question of implication. Can you Are there images that can get the broader public to feel implicated? And are there images which transgress our expectations? If our only expectation is abjection, well, then more abjection is not going to transgress it. Yeah. I just kind of want to draw on the point you made there just to kind of remind people of sort of when you're talking about King, you're talking about a kind of whole network of groups of people and stuff. Uh, And I kind of just wanted to ask you about leadership and the kind of problematics of a kind of charismatic leader as a figure. And I know a lot Mm -hmm. of activist groups now opt for a decentralized leadership model. And obviously part of that is because... Or say they do, yeah. Well, and I guess part of that historically is because of the kind of assassinations and murder of leaders. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about leadership and is there a place for leadership? How do you how do you see these kind of figures? Do you still see them appearing in the same way, or do you think that's not really happening in the same way now? Well, again, I mean, the, the most important thing to note about what changed is that. You're moving from a time in which Black people cannot participate broadly in formal political politics, democratic politics. So you're moving from a time where Black people can't participate in formal democratic politics to a time where they can. That radically changes everything. (laughs) In a world where people have to rely on brokers and spokespersons to channel their opinions, they can't vote, they can't contribute to candidates, they can't run for office other things start to become the mechanism by which people become spokespersons or leaders or brokers and other concerns start to matter. So like, why does charisma become so important? It becomes important in part because, well, how can you demonstrate you have a constituency? You have to amass people. How do you amass people? Partly through organizing, but partly through charisma, right? You have to be someone people are moved to see. When your political project, because you're suffering from so much domination, requires people to make enormous sacrifices, (laughs) you often have to galvanize them to do so by being able to channel spiritual energy, by channeling persuasive arguments about why people should be willing to make sacrifices, which they might not live to see the benefits of. Often it helps to be able to deliver that in a charismatic way. So part of the decline of charismatic leadership isn't just like some uh, cognitive enlightenment that the black public has undergone. It's, it's about the shift in the underlying politics, political structure. Now, with that said, I think that the critique of charismatic leadership has made some really, really important points. And it draws mostly on the work of Ella Baker, the legendary civil rights organizer. I think there's a way in which charismatic leadership can work to disempower people where they think that they can't do anything without the magical qualities of their particular leader. So for for many decades after King's assassination, you know, you would see these black political commentaries like, where's the next Martin Luther King? Who, Who will it be? Will somebody rise to this level? Instead of saying, well, we could do a lot of this work now in other ways. You also have this problem of gender, right? So, so um, Erica Edwards has a great book on charisma. And one of the things she says there is that charisma has a scaffolding. 
right? That we treat it as like a natural endowment. That guy's charismatic. Like, no, <laughs> there's a whole culture. There's a whole set of performances. There's a whole set of scenes that have to be set in order for people to perform charisma. If we don't let any women speak at the March on Washington or the Million Man March, we're not going to have any charismatic women to look up to, partly because we don't give them the stage in which to perform charisma. If we already only see ambition as something to be praised in men and disparaged in women, you're not going to find yourself judging there to be a lot of charismatic women. Like, I mean, one amazing instances of this, um, to talk about electoral politics, is if you remember when Elizabeth Warren broke onto the scene as a public figure, it was through a viral YouTube video where she was explaining social responsibility, uh, social wealth, questions of, of, of collective justice uh, in someone's living room. And people were just blown away by how charismatic she was and how great she was at explaining this and moving the people to understand these questions of economic justice. And in the intervening period, now it's like a consensus view that she's not charismatic. That's bizarre. It's, but it's because she's been put through the grist of, put through the mill of conventional politics where people are layering, layering on to her all of these significations about gender, which deny her charisma that she self-evidently has if you watch her. She's an amazingly charismatic person. Mm. But... Once that ideology sets in, once the scaffolding gets broken down, now she can't inhabit that space. That's, that's a function of the broader culture, not her. So I think those have been really important parts of, of the, the critique of charisma. Another thing which is really important is, that, is about democratic responsiveness in, uh, inside organizations. So democratic responsiveness inside organizations. So you know, one of the problems with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, with Operation Push led by Jesse Jackson, with the National Action Network led by Al Sharpton, is that they can slide into autocracy, right? That if the, the charismatic leader doesn't want it done, there's really no mechanism with which to resist that, to say that well, our priorities should be different here. And so you end up having this spokesperson that's not particularly responsive to a set of like democratic processes or democratic checkpoints speaking on behalf of a broader group. Now, at least King's organization, you know, it was made up of other churches. So, you know, people had independent sites of power. There were elections, people voted for, for various things, but at a certain time King's charisma overwhelmed that. And the same thing has been true of other organizations since. So I think a lot of organizers recognizing the frustrations and limits of that have tried to break out of that model. Now, the problem, of course, is that charisma is malleable. And in our moment, I think we have to be careful in the ways in which charisma may reappear in new forms. So that part of the performance of a new charisma may be the disavowal of charisma. Why is Bernie Sanders excite such passionate um, response? In part, his charisma is a disavowal of the normal accoutrements of charisma. The curmudgeon has become charismatic. Uh, mm. The person who claims to, to not be a leader at all can sometimes be the real leader of an organization. And uh, I mean, again, this has a precedent in civil rights history with Bob Moses, 
But Bob Moses was con- he was the most dedicated disciple of Ella Baker, and he's constantly trying to disavow any ascription to him of like charismatic leadership, inordinate authority. And every time he does it, it just deepens the love and passion and charisma and authority people ascribe to him hmm. to the point where he has to quit because he he's just, like, people are people are expecting something from him that he thinks is anathema to the organization. Hmm. I'm I'm just aware that. We've been speaking for almost an hour and I don't want to eat into any other meetings you've got today. But I just wanted to say thanks so much for taking the time out to speak to me. No, thank you. Thank you. It's a great conversation. You got great questions. I appreciate it. Great. Are you working on any forthcoming projects? Yes, I'm finishing up a book now called The Tragic Vision of the Civil Rights Movement. So it's a critique of the ways in which we tell the story of the civil rights movement um, by using the tools of literary theory, philosophy of history, political theory, and the ways in which those stories get taken up into the actual practice of politics and the practice of political philosophy. So it's a book I've been working on for a long time. It's a long book, but I'm happy to, to have it pretty much wrapped up now. And hopefully it'll be out uh, next year. Amazing. Well, I, I look forward to reading it and maybe you can come back and we can chat about I that as well. It. I would love it. Amazing. Thank, Thank you so, so much. much. Thanks for listening to the MIT Press Podcast. If you enjoyed that interview, make sure to subscribe and keep an eye out for forthcoming episodes. Thank you to Samantha Doyle, who edits the podcast, and Kristen Galuno, who provided the soundtrack. My name is Sam Kelly, and if you have any thoughts or questions regarding the podcast, feel free to reach out at info at mitpress.org.uk.